0: Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney.
1: Oh, yes. Caught Offside from a basement in Westchester and an apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Uh, Belated happy birthday to you. And a future upcoming happy birthday to you this Friday.
0: Yeah, I'm struggling a bit with that one. I was supposed to fly to Ireland tomorrow night. Uh, That is not possible. Um, so I've been dealing with that. I've been quite sad about that. Um, but yeah. look, look, reality is, uh, I got my antibody test results back. And of course I knew I had COVID-19, um, at the end of March and they confirmed that I was positive. I did have it. Um, and I would urge anyone who is, who can get an antibody test to go and do it, help with the tracking and the tracing of this thing. Give us an idea, give us some figures. Um, because a friend of mine texted me and said, oh, yeah, apparently I had COVID-19 symptomless. No symptoms. Wow. So here yeah, we are.
1: Well, I'm certainly glad you're doing better now. And uh, your girlfriend as well. Sad that you can't go to Ireland. This weekend was also su- uh, supposed to be my sister's wedding, which is obviously not happening now. <laughs> <Your> <laughs> because sister- of coronavirus, not for any other reason. Oh,
0: she got bored of Captain <laughs> Cardigan. She's looking for someone more swashbuckling buckling like me. You know, one thing with, um,
1: and and you kind of made fun of it a little bit on last week's podcast, and I feel like we didn't quite talk more about it. You did the fake advertisement for Caught Offside. And like, after you did it, I was kind of thinking more about it. And then I was watching TV later and throughout the week. And like, you're not kidding. Every ad, it feels like, has now been switched over. It's like every advertising executive at the same exact time was like, Everything we do now needs to be emotional and tear jerking. And I get where they were coming from, but I do feel like it's becoming utterly exhausting to watch commercials now. And it's time Uh, for the the advertising agency to get back to like something different, whether that be humor, God forbid, or something. But like, I can't take every commercial doing all that it can to try to make me cry.
0: One of our listeners uh, contacted us and said that every advert now must finish with Rihanna's and we rise up.
1: Ugh, which is, I mean, which is, I get
0: what they're doing, but it's,
1: unfortunately, they all did it. And it's just like, I can't watch, and, and you know, in a DVR world, you don't really watch many commercials to begin with, but it's, it's, become, it's become a bit much. And we need, we need some normalcy to return first to the advertising agency and then slowly to the rest of society.
0: A comedian on Twitter did something great and I couldn't, I can't find the tweet right now. So I'll just give you what it was. It was, it was like this. He he goes, soft, hopeful music. Honda doesn't want you to die from COVID 19. In fact, Honda doesn't want anything bad to happen to you. Honda is here for you. We're a good person. Honda is a nice person. Remember that Honda is selling cars and vans. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, and the piano kicks
0: in, oh, and yeah. we rise up. If you say if you say anything hopeful on this podcast, I'm going to come in with and we rise up.
1: Well, don't you worry because I am not typically a hopeful person. um Having said that, though, let's talk about some of what's gone on in soccer over the course of the past week. Really, what's gone on in the past 24 hours? So. Um, there's been this kind of will they, won't they feeling about the Bundesliga? Are they going to play games before everyone else? Are they not? What is the actual time frame? Well, today we come to find out that, yeah, they're going to play, and they're going to play really, really soon. Um, Angela Merkel has kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, reopened the soccer doors within that country, um, and it appears now the target dates for a restart of that league uh, are either May 15th or May 22nd. Don't hold me necessarily to those dates, but it seems like those are the two that are being talked about. And now all of a sudden, and look, the Bundesliga is already a league that the eyes of the world are focused on, but now in a much more different way because they are now propping themselves up when other leagues like in Belgium and the Netherlands and France, when those leagues have said, uh-uh, we're not going to do it, Germany has now been the one who is willing to come forward and say, okay, we will be the test case for the rest of the world. And not even just in soccer. Like, you can't tell me the NBA, MLB, NHL. Like, they'll all be seeing, I'm sure, what goes on in the Bundesliga. And if players start coming down with this virus again and it becomes an issue, I really think it's going to scare off sports around the globe for maybe the remainder of 2020. There's a lot riding on what happens uh, in these next few weeks in the Bundesliga.
0: And I also think that there will be Belarusian football executives who will be deeply upset by this uh, predicament as they find themselves no longer... The only show in town. Um, but yeah, look, I, I I think I think everyone's going to be watching Germany very carefully, but I think everyone needs to realise that, you know, talking about MLS returning or talking about the Premier League returning or Serie A returning is, is is kind of it's not a good comparison because if you look at the way that Germany has by and large dealt with testing and contract tracing. This has been one of the more successful efforts, in, in certainly in Europe. In, according to the Robert Koch Institute, Germany had 1, 6, or 164,807 confirmed cases of the virus, 137,000 people recovered, and 6,996 deaths. And, and that's largely down to their very, very um, forensic and cautious and careful contact tracing and and the huge amount of tests they were able to roll out. So um, the eyes of the world will certainly be on the Bundesliga. You talked about Angela Merkel, um, you know, giving her, granting this, um, you know, this kind of green light for the Bundesliga. But also Germany's uh, federalist nature means that there were certain regions that were pressurizing her to, you know, make a decision on this. Now, she's a scientist herself, so she will be going with best practice. This will be absolutely meticulously run, I, ex- I, I, I expect. But you're right. If something goes wrong, I think that could signal a decision. And, and I don't want to make it as, as simple as, well, if the Germans can't do it. We well, no, ho- but
1: that's that's pretty
0: much what I was going to say in that, like, you just laid
1: out those stats and those figures and how it reflects fairly positively on the way Germany responded to this. So, it like even more so if things are to go bad in some way uh, over the next few weeks. like I think what you just said kind of rings, rings true a little bit. Like, wow, it, well, if it goes badly there, like think of how those numbers compare to the numbers we've seen in the United States. You know, like It's been a serious, serious – I don't have to tell you what a crisis it's been here in this country. It's, so, it's, an,
0: it's an unprecedented loss of life. Right. So outside, I'm not, outside of war in the history of our country.
1: Yeah. And so, like, not every situation, not every country is created equal in terms of how this problem is affecting society. Uh, So, you know, like, it's the exact reason why the Champions League was talking about all the difficulties that they were going to have in returning, whereas domestic leagues may not have some of those same issues, just because each country, in terms of the way it's affected their culture and their society, is different. Um, And Germany has been on the more positive end of that. So, if it doesn't, if this doesn't work there, then I really think that that's kind of a, kind of a, a signal of caution for the rest of the world.
0: I mean, the, the German football authorities made it clear to Angela Merkel as well that there was a potential loss of 56,000 jobs should the Bundesliga not be able to reopen. There was the remaining monies that TV monies that were owed to the Bundesliga, which is, as good as Germany runs football, it's just a kind of a an indicator of how much... F- Domestic global football, as we know it right now, is built on sand. It really is. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it's. I think it's interesting that Emmanuel Macron lobbied or tried to lobby the German government not to do this, which I, I, I think was 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 curious. Maybe not curious, but um, in the athletic article that Honigstein, Raphael Honigstein, had, he 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 mentioned that Macron was was trying to get Germany not to not to reopen their football. So.
1: Well, well, we're going to talk um, to Jeff Carlisle uh, coming up in a little bit, uh, primarily about the U.S. women and their the developments from this past week in their legal battle for equal pay, but also about the Bundesliga reopening and just what sort of an impact that'll have on MLS, because you're starting to see some clubs in MLS getting back to training, albeit in just like the most... the the most cautious way possible i don't even know how they can really have training with some of the measures they're taking but jeff will shed some light i'm sure on um how much mls is going to be keeping an eye on what happens in the bundesliga jj i do feel like when the bundesliga returns don't you feel like we you and i almost need to do like the way we do a season preview for like the epl or mls don't you think we need to do like bundesliga restart season preview like like, it, I feel like it's like when a TV show leaves you with some cliffhanger at the end of a season and then, like, you're supposed to just pick right back up with it when the show resumes, like, four months later. I feel like this has been one of those things. Like, there was, like, this cliffhanger that we were left in and now we need to, like, we're going to have to dive back in with a previously on the Bundesliga.
0: Now, people have been looking for a Bundesliga uh, helper fan, but I, I, I like your idea much more.
1: Oh yeah, no. We're go- we're going to have to do a full blown. Here's where we left you. Yeah, like and by the way, for for American fans, I mean, look, I know that among English speaking fans in the United States, the Premier League is it tends to be king. Um, however. Yeah, I would remind American soccer fans that are just like jonesing for soccer action just how many American, young American players there are in this league. Like, this is, if you're somebody who was not really into the Bundesliga because your attention was on the Premier League or MLS or La Liga or Champions League or whatever, like, this is a chance for you to kind of open your eyes to a league that is really good, that has a lot of players that you will be obviously aware of and care about deeply.
0: Andrew, what if Josh Sargent comes out with a stunning performances for Werder Bremen? That move to Juventus that was rumored across the internet is now back on.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, good for him. I, I I'm excited. I, I'm glad. You know, I'm cautious about this. I, like, I kind of ha- have like an eyebrow raised at this happening. But yeah, it's interesting too because some people say like, why are sports? Why are sports rushing it? Why do sport like ultimately in the grand scheme of things in terms of importance, what, what are sports? But you know, it's funny. It's very easy to say that. Um, but sports are more than just you and I being able to sit in front of our televisions and like watch a thing that we enjoy. I was reading about the Bundesliga potentially about its reopening and I forget who they're, who they were citing, but there were three different key figures within the Bundesliga, um, R- Ruminega was one of them. uh There was a few, and, and they basically said that there are potentially fifty-six thousand jobs at
0: stake. I said that you—you you clearly ignored me. I missed the whole thing. Yep, you had phased out. I said exactly that sentence.
1: Well, well it's now such, I its now such I an important and profound sentence that it needed to be said again. Obviously, when you said it, you were—I I couldn't have been the only one who had phased you out. So I'm saying it again for everyone else out there who had
0: phased me out, <laughs> covering your tracks. But you're right, Andrew. The only, the only thing I would say about this is that um, if you were in any doubt about how soccer has become, a, has become the preeminent global culture, like in terms of the arts and the sports, if we're to lump them together, soccer is the biggest of any of the cultural pursuits that we have. And the power of it and the money that it makes is now – to the point where it can influence governments to reopen leagues.
1: Yeah. Uh, I also want to talk to you about what's happening in Spain because I saw comments from Thibaut Courtois this week where uh, I guess the possibility was raised that should the league just end right now in Spain, Barcelona are top of the table and they would be crowned champions. And Thibaut Courtois basically came out and said, no, that would be wrong if that were to happen. We are actually better than they are. Uh, Now, for those who say the table doesn't lie, he's wrong. But, you know, it's very close. And I just wonder if Spain is sort of faced with a dilemma that we haven't thought quite as deeply about because we've been focused so much on the Premier League. The Premier League does not have... They have a dilemma in the Premier League in that uh, Champions League places and obviously relegation are major issues. But ultimately, this game is played to crown a champion. And that is an issue that the Premier League does not have because 100% of soccer fans who follow that league know that the right thing to do, should the league not be able to continue, would be to crown Liverpool champions. Spain does not have that luxury, and it makes me wonder if they get to a point where they, you know, because we know we've talked about the problems with the coronavirus in Spain, uh, how, how lethal and how deadly it's been there. If they get to a point where they don't feel like they can continue this season, what is the right course of action? Because I don't think naming Spain champions in the midst of a legitimate title race is the right move. I think it's. I hate that I'm saying this, but I think the better move in that case is to nullify the season.
0: I mean, I think it's it's important to 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 talk about not just Barcelona and Real Madrid, Andrew, but look right down the league. Like, for example, third, fourth, and fifth. You've got Sevilla in third, forty seven points. Real Sociedad forty six. Hetafe forty six. Atleti forty five. Look how tight that is. Like, and 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 even when you go down to relegation, again, I. I don't have the answers to these things and I've very much gone to the to the moral side of things that a country that's been ravaged by coronavirus is slowly but surely kind of trying to reopen and that sport and and gatherings of people should be the last thing that's on the list but if they're going to do it they should I believe they should wait as long as possible to try and figure out a way to get a conclusion to the season even if it's some kind of truncated tournament style, all the things we've been thinking about something that can give them a conclusion, because you're right. It's, it's very close. Um, There's lots of issues that have yet to be resolved in the league. And, um, and that's what I would plumb for wait as long as possible. And I'm of the opinion that we do the social distancing. We do, we take all the measures measures we possibly can. Now we do those things. And if we have to push back into next season, so what next season is a season that hasn't happened. The season we're talking about right now in Spain is three quarters way through. It should be finished. Finish the work you're in. That's my, yeah,
1: point. Yeah, I would agree. I just, ultimately my point is essentially that if you can't, if you can't crown what the people would deem to be a credible champion, then like, then you have to either, you what you said, you either have to wait as long as possible until they can continue the season, or then you just can't, you just can't have a a league for that year. Like you just, if there's, if the people aren't going to believe in who you're saying the champion is, then there can be no champion.
0: There may it may come to the case that you have to just go with what's happened in the season, Andrew. I'm oh. sorry. Well, I, that is, I'm sorry. In the
1: midst of a title race, I just think that the no one is going to buy. I mean, Barcelona are, are a very good team. I'm not saying that they may not go on to be champions, but to just To just say that now, when it's not a Liverpool like situation or PSG, who we'll talk about later, uh, I just feel like people are not gonna, they're not gonna be okay with that. And I understand where they'd be coming from. Now, I did wanna also, before we get to Jeff in a minute here, um, every once in a while when I'm kind of like scanning the internet, I'll come across a story and my mind doesn't even necessarily go to the story itself. It goes to, boy, I wonder what JJ thinks about this story. And that is how I felt. When I saw a report from England citing a potential option being discussed uh, of playing matches of less than ninety minutes, uh, as if that is some sort of, I don't know, way around this. I don't,
0: I don't even fully understand the logic behind it. Well, for, well, first of all. Um... That wasn't that is not on the table for the Premier League. They've said that is not being discussed. That was the idea floated by Peter Taylor, who is in his 39th year as head of the Professional Footballers Association, which is the Players Union. Um it's not on the table. And I don't know who it serves. If we if we look at it from a virus standpoint, make I mean there's no <laughs> There's no rule that says, well, you, you need to be 45 minutes man marking that defender who's got coronavirus before you can get it off him. I know. You know. If you do 35 minutes, you're safe. That's that's not the case. The only thing that it could possibly be thought to benefit is players who have been dormant for a large yes. part well, of the last while. By, by the well, way, that, that is the reason. It's not. I don't think it's about the coronavirus. Yeah, but that, but but that even from that point of view, it doesn't work. The only com- the compromises that are being made are, is on neutral venue. The actual material of the games, 90 minutes, substitutions, all those things must remain the same if you're to say this is a continuation of the season. You've got to play under the rules that you've played three quarters of the season under. So have, to bring in the games down to 30, 35 minutes or whatever he's thinking in his 2.2 million dollar salary brain is just no yeah Uh,
1: i'll tell you what let's continue some of this now we're also going to talk obviously about the uh the ongoing equal pay legal battle for the u.s women uh back on the show haven't had a chance to talk to him in a while it's nice to see him again because now we can see people jj through this uh this new podcast squad cast that we use here to record these so it's nice uh jeff carlisle back with us now jeff what's up man how are you
2: doing well guys how are you
1: we're good we're hanging in has this uh has the national quarantine been treating you kindly or are you starting to lose it like, <laughs> like many of us
2: that depends on how much of a third grade teacher i have to be during a given day or or a sixth grade teacher uh that, that that's the uh, the age of my other kids so uh yeah. but yeah it's it's uh you know you're, you're grateful for the small blessings and just try to power through everything else
1: yep jj and i were talking before about uh, the Bundesliga announcing today that they're going to restart their league sometime this month. I guess either the 15th or the 22nd seem like the dates that are kind of being looked at. Um, Obviously, we wanted to have you on to talk a lot about what happened with the U.S. women. But with this Bundesliga story being kind of so prevalent, um, that decision and what's about to happen over there, do you get a sense from people in MLS just how much the success or failure of the German restart will affect what they decide to do here?
2: My sense it's going to impact it a great deal. You know, obviously, Germany is a country that has done quite a bit right in in terms of managing uh, the impact of this pandemic. And certainly, you know, they've they've gone through the exercise of of how to best get players back on the field in a training environment while also keeping them safe. So I, I think, I expect MLS is going to take copious notes about what to do, what not to do. Now, granted, some teams in MLS started training today, just individual workouts. And I've seen the video that Sporting Kansas City put out, and my word, it is detailed. Just the different steps that they take from the moment they park. their I mean, they have to have masks and gloves on before they leave their house. And then they get to the training facility, and they have to park in these spots and go through this entrance. They can't go inside. They can't use the restroom. They've got to go to a certain part of the field. If they touch the goalpost, that's got to be disinfected at some point before the next person comes oh on. So, yeah, it, it's it's just – it's 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 super granular, and it's layer after layer after layer. And it's – I was blown away. I mean, when I saw this video, I, I was just like – on the one hand, I felt comforted that they're going to this level of detail and they're thinking about the health and safety of their players. But in thinking about what MLS is doing, what Germany is doing – I, I can't help but think that if somebody gets sick, and I mean really sick, as a, when they come back, I mean, what do you do then? What what does the league do? And it, it's hard for me to come to any other conclusion, but they'd have to shut everything right back down. Now, I mean, already, you know, a couple of Cologne players have it. Um, a, a German second division team has, has is in quarantine at the moment. And so, and everybody's still going ahead, but I, I look at that and I just I have a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that at some point this is going to go sideways. I, I just keep coming back to that. And and so, I, you know, like everybody else, I'm hopeful that it works and I'm, I'm hopeful that they are able to share what they learn with the rest of the world. But it just seems like a really precarious you know, undertaking that they're trying to do. And, and it's hard for me to see how, you know, I, I've, I've thought all along that there was a likelihood that we would not see any more soccer in this country this year. And I, I'm still leaning in that direction. Listen, I hope I'm wrong. I, I hope more than anything that I'm wrong, but it just seems like, you know, the entire sport is, is walking out on an, a frozen over pond with, with very thin ice. And it, it's not going to take much for this, this thing to, to, to get crazy. Uh, Jeff, have you
0: heard anything from any individual MLS players or, or any murmurings from the players union along the lines of what we heard from Sergio Aguero last week about about concerns from the players about going back playing?
2: Well, you know, Matt Beisler did uh, a Zoom meeting this afternoon uh, after the first training session. And, you know, the, the reaction from him was almost euphoric. I mean, I think he was so happy just to get back in the field. Um, but again, this is, this is a baby step. These are individual workouts. These, you know, they're not in a team environment. They're not in, in the building. I mean, this is the, you know, this is the first step of like a hundred that the league is going to have to go through to see if, if, you know, they can play games again. Um, so I haven't heard any grumblings on that. I, I think, I mean, I I think, you know, human nature starts to take over, and I I think guys are getting a little stir-crazy. They're tired of working out in their houses or whatever arrangements that they're making, you know, especially if you're an international player new to the country, new to your city. I mean, that's got to be, you know, just orders of magnitude more difficult in terms of trying to deal with this. So I I haven't heard any concerns yet, but, you know, I I think part of that is because – a team like Kansas city did go to this level of detail in terms of trying to keep guys safe. I I think as long as that happens, I suspect that the players will be okay with the steps that it will take to go forward. But if, if the league skips a step, or if there's a stumble in terms of somebody, you know, acquiring this virus, then, then it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I mean, right now the reality is that there are, some teams, I mean, granted, it's only like four out of 26 in MLS. Some teams are back, you know, on the field on a very limited basis. Um, there's again, there's still a lot that has to happen for. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even playing, and it's gonna a lot's gonna have to happen to be comfortable. Um, I think, I think, you know, again, if if there is a stumble, if somebody gets sick, you know, people are gonna have to reevaluate how they how they feel about this.
1: Jeff Carlisle here with us on Caught Offside. Jeff, we uh, initially wanted to talk to you about what happened, the latest developments with the, uh, the U.S. women's national team and their fight for uh, equal pay, and they suffered a setback um, this past week. Really, I almost more than a setback. It's kind of a major blow uh, to this fight that they've been going through. Can you kind of, just as a starting point, just sort of give us like the primary reasons cited uh, in the ruling against them?
2: Well, the, the bit that I read... Um it seemed what you know the judge found a few things problematic with the women's argument one was that they negotiated the cba and he kind of when you're reading these documents you got to sift through each side's words and so you know at one point the women were offered a deal similar in structure so i wouldn't say it was identical to the men's deal but it was similar in structure and and they turned that down so And, you know, just reading some of the correspondence, the the union, the women's union quickly, you know, downshifted, well, maybe not so quickly, but at some point they downshifted into really wanting these, these guarantees, these salary guarantees for what I think in the first year of the deal was 20 players. Now it's down to 17, you know, that they get a hundred thousand dollars a year. They get severance, they get health benefits, maternity leave, you know, a lot of, Benefits that that are are tailor made to their situation. I mean, this all starts because the domestic club game on the women's side has just been chaotic. If you look at the first twenty years of this century, I mean, they, they're on their third league now. Granted, the NWSL has lasted longer than any of the in either of the previous two leagues, so there's there's been a little bit more stability. But still, it's it's a sport that I think badly needs investment, and so. That precariousness, I think, is the reason why they they keep gravitating back to the pay structure and the and the CBA structure that they do, where they get these bonuses. Um, and they and actually, in comparing the CBAs, there are a few things in terms of like sellout bonuses for you know if they get close to selling at the stadium, you know, there's some things about TV ratings. If, if they increase year over year, then the women get a cut of that. But that's also because the men are, are operating under the terms of their old agreement, which expired, I think, at the end of 2018. So, so the, I think the judge, just looking at the negotiations, found that problematic, and then he he sided with the expert that the USSF put out, where he, you know, they crunched the numbers, and on a on a per game basis, the women were making more. Now, there are I think there are loads of caveats in that. The men did not qualify for the 2018 World Cup. And I think that did a lot to kind of suppress their potential earnings. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. And, um, and some, some people, have, you know, some journalists have cr- have actually crunched the numbers in, in pieces and, and, and talked about that. But I think, I think it was, it was those two things. And you know, the, the class period was like 2015 to, to 2020. And when you looked at those numbers, You know, it it was hard to make the argument just based purely on the numbers. It was hard to make the argument that the the men were getting paid more for the women, either total numbers or on a per game basis. And I think I think that was always a vulnerability and it was always going to depend on how that argument was crafted and and put before the court. And so, you know, the judge opted to, to side with the USSF and it was a huge victory. I mean, a year ago. I mean, I've seen reports that the women were offered $9 million to settle. I've heard $10 million, and they turned it down. I think they, they really believed that they were going to prevail in court, even though, you know, you you look at some of the, the, the lawyers on Twitter, you know, whether it's a Stephen Bank or, or someone like that, um, saying hey, these cases are tough to win. Um, and so I, I think the women had some compelling arguments, but I, I think they – I think where they placed too much faith was it's it's, it's all about the rate. It's all about the rate of the bonuses. And really the judge said, no, you cannot just include the bonuses. You have to include the entire pay package, the salaries, the benefits, you know, the bonuses, everything. And, you know, I think that that ultimately is why the Federation's case won the day. Jeff, um, I would be of the opinion
0: that there's no real winners in this. And, and if you look at it, it's a national team, an open revolt against, it, against the Federation. You've got protests before a game where they're wearing their training tops inside out so you can't see the Federation badge. Then you had the, the whole, I hate using the word PR because it wasn't just public relations. These were disparaging arguments about women's abilities that were laid out in the USSF filings. I mean, this is a real mess right now.
2: Yeah, I, I thought it was telling that the statement that the USSF put out after this most recent ruling, it they were not gloating, <laughs> they they were not pounding their chests. They they were like, I think they you can tell from the tone of it that they they really want to move beyond this and they and they really want to open up a new chapter. And, and you can't start over. Too much has been said. Too much, you know, has. Has has been you know written about, and, and and too many court filings have been made, but that, you know you, you sense that it, it was you know the, the USSF really if they could push a reset button, I think they would love to, and you hope that at this point both sides can get to the bargaining table. I mean, the the one kind of silver lining for the players was that the entire case wasn't thrown out. I mean, there there were still some things you know that they could. You know, sink their teeth into a little bit, just in, in terms of, uh, you know, the hotels and and the, and the charter flights, I believe, and then the support staff. So that that provides an opening for the women to get a settlement and then walk away feeling maybe not a you know one hundred percent great because obviously they're not they're not going to get the sixty six million that they were they were angling for, but they they walk away with something. So it's it's a little bit you get to save face a little bit. Um,
1: well, that. That was going to be my question for you is like, you know, in seeing some of what women's soccer players have said on Twitter, the fight will continue. I mean, Mm -hmm. they've made that pretty clear. So what is what is their next move? Is there any further legal recourse or is it simply like you just said, negotiating for some sort of settlement with U.S. soccer?
2: Well, there is an appeal that they could file, but because the entire case was not thrown out, it's you know, there's some there's some shackles around around whether that appeal will be allowed. Um, I think it's called an interlocutory appeal. And I'm, you know, lawyers everywhere are probably cackling right now at the way I'm mispronouncing that. But um, so they can file that appeal. But, you know, I think that that could take a while. We could be talking years, you know, I mean, another two years, and and there's going to be time to to negotiate a new CBA. So you wonder if a better avenue, a quicker avenue – uh, one that we get money in their pocket faster would be to settle and then set their sights on this new CBA, which I believe is 2021. I think is when when the next one, exp- this, the current one expires. So you know you you know we'll we'll see if they have an appetite for that. Certainly, I think the the players' legal counsel again really thought that they they were going to win at trial, and um, that didn't turn out to be the case. But I, I think. Just about everybody's saying, "Hey, let's let's settle." I mean, I think the the players are putting on a brave front at this point in terms of you know the the, the legal result. But again, if you know, again, we'll, we'll see if that's palatable to them. Uh, Jeff,
0: do you think there's anything in the idea that we've got Cindy Parlow Cone at a you know at the helm right now for U.S. Soccer? And there's I wouldn't I, I don't like the term regime change, but with Carlos Cordero being gone there may be a sense of a, a, a new kind of uh, dispensation between the two groups and that the women now in light of this legal blow would be more amenable to sitting down and hammering something out with a kind of a new USSF.
2: Well, certainly I think the odds of that are better now with, with Cindy Parlo-Cohn in charge, but this is a board-driven organization. It is the board that decides... A lot of what goes on. I mean, I think Cindy Parlo Cohn is is kind of the, the forward facing representative of, of the organization, and, and Will Wilson too is the new CEO. I mean, you know, he'll be, you know, he'll be out front, you know, trying to to you know state the case for the federation on a variety of fronts, not just this one. But again, this is you know the board has to decide. There are. Some other women on the board. Uh, Patty Hart is an independent director. Uh, I think Lisa Carnoy is is another one. It is it is mostly men still. But you know, there's also been just a, a huge exodus, really, when you think about the leadership of the USSF. I mean, Dan Flynn is gone. Jay Berhalter is gone. Sunil Gulati is n- not only out of the presidency, he's no longer on the board. He, he was on the board as the previous president. Now that's Carlos Cordero. So, so he's not you know, involved anymore. So it's, there was a there was an org chart that Cordero put out shortly after he was elected. And I counted only two people that were in like the top tier of, of executives. I mean, now that Brian Remedy is gone, that's another guy with a lot of institutional memory and who was fairly well regarded within the Federation, um, just in terms of just a loyal soldier and, and someone that I think, you know, commanded general respect. Um, but so so he's out. So he 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 and, and Tanya Wallach were, were both fired in kind of one of the first moves by Will Wilson. So you know it'll be interesting to see what kind of stamp Wilson puts on the organization at large. Again, you know, Cindy comes the president, but Will Wilson is gonna be the guy running the day-to-day. And All right. so we'll see to what extent that influences things, and then again the board is gonna decide how how they proceed. And you know, I think. Out of all this, I mean, Don Garber carries tremendous clout now, I think, within the Fed. He and Will Wilson go way back, you know, to their days at the NFL together, you know. And I think, you know, from what I gather, you know, Will Wilson was a guy that he really wanted to get the CEO job. So again, it'll be, I I think it's not unfair to say that that Don Garber is is one of the powers behind the throne, but the board, again, it's a board-driven organization and they are going to be the ones that set the agenda. And you hope that out of all of this, that they've learned some lessons. And, and and Carlos Cordero was still there as the previous president. So he's still on the board.
1: Man, that next CBA negotiation is going to be fascinating. Oh, wow. I have. We'll see how ugly it gets yeah. or if there's a little bit of remorse almost on the U.S. Soccer Federation side where they're willing to give more, uh, who knows, but that is going to be really something interesting to watch. Jeff, I just have one more for you. It's actually uh, on the U.S. men's side of things. Um, World Cup qualifying is not technically that far off from starting. CONCACAF mentioned possible changes to the qualification structure and format of it because of everything going on with the coronavirus. Uh, any idea what that might look like?
2: Well, Victor Bantagliani has been making noises about this for a while now. I think he gave – I think there was a conference call last month in which he said, yeah, this is this is going to change. Part of it was because – you know, in addition to the Hex, you know, there was this other tournament that was going to be kind of the back door, uh, if you will, that would allow the rest of the, you know, the Confederation to have a shot, at least getting to a World Cup. Even back then, like, you know, a month or so ago, even beyond, Montaliani said there are not enough dates now to, to get that whole competition in. So, you know, I'm hearing that, you know, the Hex is going to be expanded. It may be eight teams, you know, four in a group. Um, I mean I think this is all still very fluid but at the at the time that I was on that conference call with Victor Montagliani, he was saying you know not only was the the Nations League window going to get postponed which it did um but the September one was likely to as well and so and really Concacaf is in a position where they they kind of have to wait on MLS and and Liga MX and, and the various leagues in, in the confederation to get back up and running because Teams are not going to want to send their players on international duty if right. they can't even right. get their own house in order at the domestic level. So, uh, you know, I think I think it's a really fluid situation. I mean, dealing with with this pandemic, fluid is kind of the byword because it changes so so quickly. And you know, I think a lot of sports organizations, understandably, are. are spinning your wheels kind of has a negative connotation, but they're they're burning a lot of cycles trying to figure out how to make this all work and how to get these seasons in. And it's, 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 it's extraordinarily difficult, but I, at this stage, it, it, it's tough to see how those, that, those September games go on as well. And that was supposed to be the first window where world cup qualifying was going to happen. So it's, uh, you know, I think, you know, we're going to see some changes to the format for sure.
1: Yeah. Oh man. Lots of questions. There are so many questions. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get answers sometime soon. I don't. You're right, though. This is all so uncharted, this territory that we're in. Um, who knows? Who the hell knows? Like, honestly. But uh, when more things come up, we'll certainly come back to you because you help us out, Jeff, uh, with all this stuff. Thanks so much, man. Glad you're safe. We'll talk to you soon.
2: Back at you, guys. Thanks, Jeff. Same here.
1: Our thanks to Jeff. Good to hear from him. Glad he's doing well, of course. One of our favorite guys uh, to speak with on the show. All matters U.S. soccer related. Um, JJ, I just wanted to at least mention you know you and i kind of give a little bit of our thoughts on the u.s women you know we we did there for the most part but yeah you know, i don't know if you saw um dan wetzel at yahoo sports had an article up a couple days ago about this and he kind of you know like i almost felt uncomfortable reading it because obviously i'm i'm pro equal pay i i'm kind of of the, the opinion of i don't i almost don't know how everyone is not like of that viewpoint but in but like in in the legal realm, you know Dan, Dan Wetzel, he kind of lays out some of the reasons why this, why they were defeated in this case, and just essentially that like, you know, it was it's a CBA that they negotiated for, and when presented with other options where they could have gone with more of the U.S. men model, they specifically chose to go this route, you know. So like that was their decision, you know, in terms of the money. Um, disparity between the men's world cup champion and the women's world cup champion you know the the u.s women have wanted that to be equalized by u.s soccer and really uh, yeah you could u.s soccer go above and beyond sure and that would be a great gesture for them to do so but is it is it one that should be legally required i would say probably not i think their gripe is more so in terms of that with it's more so with fifa than with u.s soccer so you know, I, I don't like that the US women lost this fight. Um, but I guess there are some reasons where I where I guess I see why they did.
0: yeah, I, I mean I, I got it wrong in terms of I didn't think that the judge and again it was a, a mistake on, on, on my part, I didn't think the judge would look at the CBA and just say, well that that's this this solid stone pillar that you know couldn't be that would inhibit any way that this case could go forward but i mean obviously in in hindsight it was and 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 the judge went by the max of the case he looked at the time period and said well they haven't been paid less so on the evidence presented to war on front of him for that time period they didn't have a case but like you know i've said this before on the podcast the, the the top looking at um women's soccer in America from the standpoint of the national team where some of them are remunerated, you know, are are paid well uh, for what they do for the national team um, is not really, even if that was solved, it wouldn't solve the issue of equal pay. We've got to get our hands around the fact that the NWSL, you know, it doesn't pay enough. It It's not sustainable. Like what I found interesting is if you look at the the way, for example, the Irish soccer team are paid. So, the Irish international soccer team. Um, well, let's take the English international soccer team for twenty eighteen. They got about eighteen hundred dollars per winning World Cup qualifying game. That's the men's team, and the Irish men's team got two thousand euros per game. You are looking at ten and twelve thousand for the men's and women in the in, in the United for the men and women in the United States, and you got to ask yourself why that is. It's because. You've got to pad the earnings for the U.S. women's national team because they just don't make that much at the NWSL level. There's structural issues that need to be dealt with in women's soccer, and maybe it's a bottom-up approach, if you know what I mean, a grassroots approach that opportunity and money are equal across the board for both the men and the women all the way up right to the very top.
1: Uh, Let's see. We have a a big mailbag in just a sec, but JJ first. I need to tell you something. We have a new sponsor on the show. That's that's wonderful. Uh, and I want to tell you about him right now. That, for- that, that sponsor is eating into Belarusian soccer time. Come on. <laughs> wow. what a You really know how to lay down the welcome mat, don't you? God. For e-commerce businesses, shipping in two days or less is the new standard. And as a growing business, how can you keep up? Well, JJ, I'm here to introduce to you Shippo. Shippo is your business's new secret weapon. Shippo is the only shipping software for growing businesses that you can start today, set up in minutes, and then ship today. Because they ship hundreds of millions of packages, Shippo's volume discounts save you up to 90% off carrier rates. Simply connect your online store to Shippo. There's no coding or technical expertise required. They'll instantly identify the lowest shipping rates from 55-plus top global carriers like UPS, USPS, FedEx, and DHL. uh, your orders are automatically pulled in and ready to go. Just click, print, and ship. Plus, automated return labels are free. You only pay if your customers use them. Companies that use Shippo have saved thousands of dollars. Uh, they it, it free up hours of, uh, of valuable time. And on average, they grow 77% year over year. So join over 100,000 companies like Goat, Hems, MeUndies, who are saving up to 90% off carrier rates, with Shippo, For our listeners, they're offering the best discount available anywhere. Get a shipping consultation and Shippo Pro Plan six-month trial for free at goshippo.com slash offside. That's up to a $700 value for free at goshippo.com slash offside. Shippo spelled S-H-I-P-P-O. Shippo, welcome to Caught Offside. Welcome, Shippo. Uh, let's yeah. see. You have a
0: mailbag here, which I'm very excited about. I do have a mailbag, and I'm going to forego the Belarusian Soccer League results just so we can get through all the mailbag. I will just oh, say no one knows how to jump ship like you. The Bundesliga announces that they're back. Bye, Belarus. It's been nice knowing you. All you I will are say, so disloyal. All I will say is Bate and Shakhtar had good, good wins at the weekend. Uh, Slutsk are still top. Mailbag. Caught offside pod at gmail.com. Cut off site ESPN on the Instagrams and, uh, at a soccer pod on Twitter. That's where you can find us. And, uh, also if you want to leave a review on iTunes, absolutely do that five star, and then say whatever you want in the comments. Um, here we go with the mailbag, Andrew, and it is a good mailbag. Uh, Jesse Pruitt kicks us off. Gents, what of your own clubs kits do you love the most? And what kits of other clubs do you envy the most? Um, I will go with our own kit. I really uh, liked the 1989-90 kit from uh, from Adidas. I, I really love that kit with kind of the boomerangs on it. Uh, that was a lovely effort. And I envy, I don't really envy any other kits, but I think Wolves have a nice kit. The current Wolves kit is very nice. Uh, the Kappa kit at Aston Villa, the Away shirt, I, I like. I like that whole kit. And I've always liked Baca Juniors.
1: That's nice. Um, for me, I thought o five o six Spurs uh, when Thompson was the sponsor. It was like a white shirt, but the sleeves were all navy blue. I thought yeah. that was, I thought that was cool. Um, also, the o seven o eight, they're all white uh, with Mansion as the sponsor. Um, also, I, I like the all white. I think that's a nice, sleek look. Ultimately, I, I like Tottenham's. Like navy blue is probably one of my, if not my, favorite colors. I just think navy blue and white looks. It just looks good together. Now. In terms of other kits that I'm envious of, like you, I'm, I would not say I'm envious of any other kits. However, I will say this. It does bother me as a Tottenham fan that I typically do really like Arsenal's kits. I think that they usually have a nice look to it, and I
0: wish I didn't feel that way. Wow. Oh, Jeez. stop. Actually, if I'm being honest, I do like the, the classic bruised banana away kit for Arsenal. That is a really nice one. That's a good one. Um, Kenny. Kenny wants us to know our views on Kevin De Bruyne and what he had to say to Belgian newspaper Het Laatste Nieuws. Once the decision is made, I will review everything. The decision being uh, Manchester City's ban from the Champions League. Two years would be long, but in the case of one year, I might see. I'm just waiting. The club told us they're going to appeal, and they're almost 100% sure they're right. That's why I'm waiting to see what will happen. I trust my team, which is, I would say, I have nothing to say about that, really. I have two things to say. Sorry. (laughs) The first thing is, I forgot this is a podcast in which I should give my opinions. Uh, The first thing is, keep your mouth shut during a global pandemic um, about where you're going to be. And the second thing, uh, look, I mean, I'm sure this is going through his mind. There was no re- reason to articulate it, and uh, you know, um, I don't understand why he had to kind of spill his brain on this one.
1: I do wonder, like, if this happens, are if they are required, like, I'm guessing they'll have to they'll have to sell guys. So you look at like, okay, well, De Bruyne has just offered himself up. I almost wonder if he shouldn't have said that because I wonder if it hurts Man City's leverage. Uh, Which he doesn't care about. Uh, He'll have, you know, he'll probably have hard feelings against Manchester City for having gotten themselves into this situation. Um, But I guess him and Leroy Sane, like, I wonder if those two guys, if they could get back a certain amount of money where it could, like, get them back. It's not going to get them back in good standing in terms, like, legally. Um, Their ban won't be overturned because they sold players that they needed to sell to make money back. But I, they have some. I guess they have some obvious
0: candidates. Where, where do you get that Man City from? From all the leaked documents, where do you get that they think they give a damn about getting back into good standing? They said if if this turns nuclear, they'll go nuclear with their with their legal team. Well, if the
1: day should arise where they have to sell players, it seems like they have at least a couple who could get them a ton of money
0: quick. Right, but but this is one of the best midfielders. In, yeah, in, the in, the, in the world. In the world. I don't think they'll want to ship him at all. He's key to what they do. I mean, maybe his 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 age, I mean he's not old, but maybe maybe the injuries, maybe that could be something. I don't know. Um, let's see. What have we next, Andrew? Oh, uh, Matt. Is there a player that everyone else seems to love but you just can't stand? Not because of what he does off the field, but because you don't think they're all that good rewatching MLS All-Star game from 2014 which is i mean that's got to be the weirdest rewatch
1: it's definitely where you should create opinions like this
0: <laughs> it confirms my dislike for Michael Bradley
1: <laughs> which i also find funny that like like look this is not a Michael Bradley hating podcast but most it does seem like most US soccer fans that we engage with hate Michael Bradley so for like I appreciate the question from Matt, but I don't know that I would consider you like a unique uh soccer fan in that you watched Michael Bradley play and you now don't like him. I feel like there's a lot of fans that that feel that way, which again, I don't I don't know that I totally get or agree
0: with, but that's M- Matt Matt I feel like in terms of hating Michael Bradley, you could join an organization or a club. So my answer to this,
1: I I don't know I I may fall a little bit short of giving him like the exact direct answer that he was looking for, but I'll say this. Um I do think Paul Pogba is a really good player. However, <laughs> oh. he, he, he's going to have to reconvince me of his world-class status when, whenever it is that soccer starts up again and he, whenever it is that he starts playing again uh, because we've kind of been in a period where we haven't really seen it. Oh, it's you and Graham
0: Soonis, isn't it? Together in a bar slagging off Pogba. Oh, please. Like, you don't agree. You've been ripping him for three years. I'm just glad you said it. It meant I didn't have to say it again. <laughs> um, I'm not,
1: look, I'm not saying that, like, I don't hate him. Uh, and I do think he's a good player, but like, he's someone that, I don't know. Like, it's been a while since we've seen that.
0: Yeah, I, I went, I tried to to get into the spirit of this question. Um, I was never a big Michael Carrick or Gareth really? Bar- Gareth Barry fan for that matter. No, for the praise heaped on them by the English media. I actually thought they were pretty limited players. Carrick? That's shocking to me. He seems like someone that would be so up your alley. No,
1: no, not really. I don't even know what to say right now.
0: No, I just thought, I I, I know the function he served in that United team, particularly coming in and, and, and having the unenviable job of replacing Roy Keane. But I just thought, I just thought the English media went over the top, in the way that they talked about them as central midfielders. And I, I thought they were quite limited. And obviously there's Joe Hart, who I never rated. Never. Um, but uh, but there we are. Wow. Um, you think I you know a guy. Iceberg. Uh, I think I remember Andy saying he supports Roma when it comes to the Italian League. I might be making that up. Bespi- despite, sorry, excuse me. Besides Liverpool and Spurs, what teams are you guys especially fond of in other leagues? Do you, I, would like, you, I would like to start here. Um, are you a Roma
1: guy? That was entirely made up. I've never said that ever. I don't I don't necessarily dislike Roma, but I don't know where he got that from. Um, so, yeah, totally made up. Um, look, ultimately, the only clubs that I support are Tottenham and the Philadelphia Union. And then after that, everyone, for me, kind of falls into the category of I, I hate or I don't quite hate. Although I've kind of always been cool with Fulham
0: because they're very good to Americans. Um, For me, it's obviously my hometown team, Sligo Rovers. I've been fond of Napoli over these last few years. I just love watching them play. And also that town has got, it's got something about it. Uh, I've never been, but I mean, so you're just
1: completely talking out of your A.
0: You're such a buffoon. If you ever read a book or watched a documentary, <laughs> have you even watched the Maradona documentary yet? How at could least you not, nine times? How can you not think there's something about Napoli? You ignoramus. <laughs> even watching the first 20 minutes of it, you're like, "Look at this place. It's insane." Um, and even what our friend Andy May told us about it when he visited when Manchester City played there. You are just you have no memory and uh, you are a Philistine. Um, I like I've loved the way I played over the last couple of seasons. And uh, I think for some reason, Borussia Dortmund, I think it's the fan culture in the stadium. Um, I kind of have a I have a soft spot for them. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Marcus Paolo. He contacted us, saw an MLS All-Star competition video from 2000. It was a thing called Goalie Wars, and he wanted to know if we knew it existed. So. Um just a for people who don't know um MLS was convinced for a lot of its early uh, maybe not it's, fair, it's not fair to say MLS I'm sure the players weren't but the people who ran MLS were not convinced that soccer <laughs> on its own was enough for people so they had to kind of jazz it up a little bit so in the All-Star game they had skills competitions they had like dribbling races and then you'd sprint back to the line I remember in 2000 that was won by Landon Donovan against um uh, a couple of other players I, whose names escape me right now. But Goalie Wars was two goalkeepers in full-sized goals, about, what, 15, 20 yards apart, tops, and they could throw the ball and try and score past the other keeper. They could kick the ball and try and score past the opposite keeper. It was like kind of a an over-and-back tennis game. And uh, if you got one in the net, you scored. If you stopped it, that was a point as well, I think. Um, But it was a staple. I used to coach soccer, um, youth soccer in in New Jersey and actually across the the eastern um, United States. And Goalie Wars was a game we would play on camp. So, um, yeah. Uh, QC Gooner sent us something from those banter merchants at Odds Bible. Uh. It's a quote from Dimitar Berbatov. And uh, this is the quote. Berbatov appears to be doing media lately for some reason. I was like, Spurs want me? Why don't Barcelona or Man United want me? I thought I was doing so well that a big team would come after me. This is Dimitar Berbatov and joining Tottenham back in 2006. And of course, you know, Odds Bible have taken the quote and they've gone, not something Spurs fans would want to hear from a Tottenham player. And then I guess looking for, you know, likes or retweets or whatever. So QC Gunner asked, and in fairness, I had a chat with him afterwards in the DMs. He wasn't trying to be a, be a complete de-nozzle about it. He he said Andrew I mean he only has Gooner in his like Twitter handle name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I but he goes, Penny for your thoughts. Yeah. So I, I've got my own thoughts on this actually, but I mean people would want to hear from you first. I have very very little thought.
1: Like that's not that's not really illuminating to me. So what do you want me? To get upset that like Dimitar Berbatov doesn't have Tottenham on the same kind of plane that he has Barcelona or at that stage, like Manchester United, I, I get that. That's not, like, I understand that. Uh, when he came to Tottenham, Spurs were not a Champions League club, and he probably felt that he was somebody that should have been playing regular Champions League football. And by the way, he's, he's probably right, and he was probably proven right by how good he was at Spurs. So I'm generally fine with that. One question I do have, maybe this is um, sensitive Spursy Andy, I, I also follow Odds Bible. Do they do they actually have something against Tottenham? Like no. I, I feel like they are – I mean, I see their tweets, and I feel like they are at their – and again, maybe it's Spursy, sensitive Spursy Andy, but I feel like they are at their peak snarkiest when they're talking about Tottenham.
0: Oh, look, I'm sure they've got uh, – since they were taken over, since they were just a college dorm thing, they've got an algorithm that tells you that the Bants against Spurs – is top for the likes and the retweets or whatever. That's what they're doing, um, and I'm sure they have on standby a picture of an empty shelf for any moment that Spurs do anything to point to uh, yeah. the, tro- the trophy cabinet. The, who takes any heed of what these 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 uh, sites? I don't follow them. Any of them, Lad Bible, Odds Bible, The Bible.
1: I can't tell you how many computer screens I've ruined by putting my fist through when I see an Odds Bible
0: mean Spurs tweet. By the way, you, you say that, you know, he, he thought he, he did well at Leverkusen. He was he played in the 0-2 Champions League final and he probably thought a bigger club would have been interested. And it's just important to, to think about Spurs in this context at this moment. And you're right, it's not unreasonable. Tottenham had yet to qualify for a Champions League yeah. and one of their efforts around that time had been thwarted by a cheesy Italian meal. <laughs> so, you know, they weren't exactly in great shape. Um, Now, here we go. Second last, penultimate. This is one that's really going to tickle your American soccer bone, if that doesn't sound too weird. Bearded Ned. So Bearded Ned contacted uh, us on the Instagrams, where you can also talk to JJ about your soccer concerns. I've supported United since I was eight. I've been living in Los Angeles for the past 14 years, and I've barely missed, I would say, 10 United games during this time. I have all the TV subscriptions I wake up for every single early kickoff, those at 4.30 a.m. I ditched classes during high school and college. I called in sick from work just to watch United live. And whenever I couldn't do that, I DVR'd the games and avoided every spoiler to watch the game at night and have a go with my team. So Ned, when he is on the United forums, is made to feel inadequate by foreign fans. In a recent argument online, one fan's retort to Ned in a debate about a player was to ask how many times he has even been to a Premier League ground. It made Ned ask himself, are foreign fans less than the local fans? Are you even a proper fan if you aren't in the stands? Andrew, the floor is yours.
1: I hate this. I hate this so much because, for a couple of reasons, I, I can obviously relate wholeheartedly with Ned because he's describing me. He's describing any number of thousands and thousands of of epl fans in this country um so like you are yes if you need any kind of reinforcement i'm here to tell you ned yes like you don't let some ignorant fool in a chat forum define whether or not you are a fan like you love the club you follow the club you know just as much about them as somebody who has season tickets for them and lives in manchester so don't let don't let somebody in a chat room tell you like convince you that you're not that's that's ridiculous. Now, the reason I hate this is because I do feel like it brings out an ugly side in in me. And by that I mean, okay, if I ran into somebody from, you know, like Manchester who told me that they were an obsessive Philadelphia Eagles fan, I don't would I accept them the same way that I accept people who are from Philadelphia as Eagles fans I would say now I would because I'm living it as a, as a soccer fan in this country but I don't know what like high school me would have thought of somebody like there might have been a part of, of the old me that would kind of just think like he says he's an Eagles fan but he doesn't know like and it, yeah
0: but but you wouldn't be as vocal about it as say English soccer fans or European soccer fans are about telling Americans they don't know anything about the game and get back in your box you know, I, I also don't know that 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 these people in chat rooms are speaking for the majority
1: of fans. I think that they're speaking for an a somewhat like ignorant segment of a fan population, but I think there's a lot of like like when New York Spurs travels over to Tottenham. To gain like they are welcomed with open arms. Like uh, they're like a part. They're just a part of the group. Like, right. I think I think most fans do recognize that there's an incredible soccer culture uh, of following the EPL in this country. Just the fact that, like, you know, you know, the, uh, you see it. With, like, they notice when 110,000 people show up and in Ann Arbor to watch Manchester United play. Like, uh, they do see that kind of passion in this country, and I think it, it does resonate. With a, with a lot of soccer fans over there, so yeah, I I don't know. Like I think you just have to. It, it's hard to say this, but you just have to ignore the the people who hate on you for being an American Manchester United fan. And you just have to know, you know what? Screw what that guy says. Like I know that I'm a fan, and I don't. I just simply don't care what he thinks.
0: Yeah. And I mean, if you're a, if you love Radiohead and you've never had dinner with Tom York, or if you've never seen Radiohead live. Does that make you less of a Radiohead fan? No. No. It doesn't. No. But it's the same It's the same thing. You can be passionate about something and really love it and uh, never have been to a game. But there's plenty of people like that. Yeah. Um, we're going to ditch the last question, push it to next week. That's the mailbag. Oh. Which means now we go right into...
1: <laughs> red card.
0: Would you like to go first? I would love to go first. Um, Andrew, the view I had always taken about Angel Di Maria's ill short, uh, short and ill-fated time at Manchester United was that injury derailed him. He didn't really fit in in LVG style of play, and his house being broken into had unsettled him. However, after reading quotes from his wife, Georgelina Cardozo, I'm beginning to think she was pretty anxious to get out of Mancunia quickly. Uh, she had this to say about Manchester on Los Angeles de Manana, an Argentinian morning show, which is uh, basically called Angels of the Morning. That's how it translated. It was horrible. Manchester is the worst. (laughs) It is all horrible in Manchester. In fact, I fought a lot with Angel about it. We lived in Madrid. Angel played in the best team in the world, which for me is Real Madrid. We were perfect. The weather was perfect. The food was perfect. And suddenly he said that there was a proposal to go to Manchester. I told him, not a chance. You are going alone. No, come on, let's go, he replied. She reveals that she had uh, visited Sergio Aguero and his wife um, for a few days in Manchester, a year before the move from Madrid, and she wasn't impressed then either. It was horrible. We went to the house and we were like, see you later, guys, we're out of here. Then we left. I said to him, go to any country except England. Anyway, one year later, and there we are in England. Now, she does admit that they went to England and to United because United were willing to pay double what um di maria was on at madrid uh Georgiana went on or Jorge Lina went on to discuss mancunians and her um well her dislike for them the people are all pasty-faced prim and proper weird they're walking down the street and you don't know if they're going to kill you or what the food's disgusting all the girls are all dolled up to the nines perfectly made up and there's me with my hair in a bun with no makeup on it kind of sounds like a you issue there, Georgelina. Uh, the most telling piece of this interview in which she left her husband in no doubt that she was unhappy in the Northwest went like this. We try to be closer when things go bad. I did not blame him for being there. I just told him, darling, I want to kill myself. Oh, my God. It is already night at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard anyone... Rip apart a place quite like that. Have you been there? Like, is she? Is there? I've never been to Manchester. I've been to Liverpool several times. Right. I mean, the northwest is is, is it, it's gloomy in the winter. Yeah, you know, it rains. But I mean, Manchester's a fairly, you know, it's it's a it's a nice city, and I'm sure in places it's not sunny Spain. But you know, Manchester's got great culture, great music. What That's... restaurants was she eating in? Like you're you're on huge money. I, I, I mean, she didn't want
1: to look. She didn't want to be there. She didn't. I. She, all, understood, all, she understood why they went. The money was too great not to go. But she didn't want to leave Madrid. So she probably went there with a bad attitude and was kind of looking for reasons to not like it. And and she found him. And he didn't play well there. So he was probably not not beloved by the fans, which probably made it even harder. Um, she's probably hearing stuff about her husband, and it, I'm sure I could easily see her experience
0: there being awful. I get it. Uh, it it is a thing uh, particularly uh, it was the mid-2000s when there was a lot of movement towards Chelsea now Chelsea were obviously paying the best wages but the fact that Chelsea was in London and seemed to be more cosmopolitan uh, was a big reason why I mean lots of player agents and some former players used to say you couldn't get the foreign players to go to Newcastle, Sunderland, uh, United, Liverpool in the same amount as they go to Arsenal they'd go to Chelsea and, and even Tottenham for a period um, because they it was just too much of a culture shock. And also, the weather was a big factor. The weather was a factor for Ronaldo. He'd had enough. A lot of his teammates said it. I, I think it was Gary Neville. I was listening to a lot of Gary Neville um, stuff of late on Sky Sports. And somewhere along the line, he said, I think Ronaldo was just done with the weather, too.
1: It's a thing. I, I get it. Uh, let's see, JJ, my red card. So a few weeks ago, you might remember uh, Bill Barnwell compiled a list of the greatest transfers in Premier League history. Yep. Um, Thierry Henry was my man of the match for that because he was number one. Uh, now we are at the inverse. Bill Barnwell has released his list of the worst transfers in Premier League history. So here it is, number one on the list for worst transfer in the Premier League era. Do you want to guess? Here's what. Here's my hint to you. My hint is that you will not get it. Um, And maybe that in itself will get you thinking down the right path. Was it our friend that was signed for Chelsea? No, it's not, it's all, it's not even, when I say it to you, maybe you'll agree. You might roll your
0: eyes because you're you. Well, what part of the, what part, give me a guess on the, on the, pen on the Premier League continuum. Is it closer to 92 or to present day? Closer to 92. Did he move to Nottingham Forest? No. Closer to 92. And it didn't work out. It's... All- <laughs> oh. I,
1: can I just tell you? Yeah. All right. His worst transfer in the Premier League era in history is Ali Dia, who was signed by Southampton. Oh, on a- come on. On a fr- I knew you would react that way. On a free transfer in 1996. Now, many people that, who, that- who are listening may say, well, who is... Ali Dia. And how can, how can somebody who was signed on a free be the worst on this list? Well, I will tell you what he wrote right now. This story is amazing. And a lot of people may know this, but a lot of our listeners may not. Bill writes, the Dia story feels as if it comes from another universe. This was in 1996 when he signed for Southampton. A man calls Southampton manager Graham Sonas, pretending to be World, pretending to be world Player of the Year George Weah. The purported Milan striker recommends Dia, his cousin, suggesting he had just scored two goals for Senegal the prior week and had played with Wea for PSG before spending 95 in the German second division. He would be an exciting prospect if any of that had been true. Dia was actually a 31-year-old college student who occasionally dabbled in non-league football. Souness brought Dia in on a trial. Days later, he named him to the bench for a Premier League match against Leeds and a amazingly... Amazingly, after an injury, Sonas sent Dia on as a substitute in the 32nd minute for Matt Latissier. His Premier League career lasted 53 minutes before Sonas admitted his mistake and subbed Dia off, and Dia went back to non-league football, never to return. The fact that this could happen as late as the 90s, Like, okay, technology is different now, then scouting systems are different now, then. But JJ, this is a story where if you told me this happened in the 50s, I might say, wow, that's ridiculous. The fact that somebody like this could actually find his way onto a field for an EPL match in 1996 is unbelievable. And so while my initial reaction to this was yours, I kind of rolled my eyes. I was like, oh, Bill's being too cute. Really looking at it, it's so bad and it's so embarrassing that I'm actually okay with it being number one.
0: Yeah, I, it's funny. That was going to be on one of, my, on one of these uh, quarantine podcasts that we were, we were going to bring it up. Uh, I, I don't know what context I was going to bring it up in, but um, it, w- it was incredible that time. Um, it was a phone call. It was a recommendation. But Matt Letizia said in an interview, you could see from training he wasn't up to it. How
1: did he wind up on the bench and on the field after an injury?
0: Now, You want to hear something else? There's a documentary, and I I will do my damnedest to find it, about an Italian player who was, I say player, he was an impersonator. He gave himself a fake agent that you never saw. He was the agent. He had a fax machine that they could contact, and it was in that period, pre-internet period. Didn't we talk about this? No, I'm not sure. Did we ever talk about it? This uh, he ended up he never ended up at a big club, but he ended up at professional clubs in Northern Ireland and in Wales and in England. And he would turn up and his whole deal was you could clearly see he wasn't good enough, but he would get a contract signed and then he would get mysteriously injured. And I know it sounds a little bit about um about Kaiser, uh, like Kaiser, the film from uh, Brazil. That's, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah, no, 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 no. He would get injured. and he, But but he had made up that he was on trial at Sheffield Wednesday and Rangers. And it's funny, the Ali Dia thing, because whatever they paid him, they were a Premier League club, right? This guy was going around ripping off. I think it was Barry Town in the Welsh League. Uh, I think it was Larne in the or Lisburn distillery or someone in the Northern Irish league teams that are week to week professional teams that rely on gate receipts to pay wages. And he, he created this elaborate thing and um, the BBC investigated him and tracked him down. And they like did the walking down the street with a microphone. Sir, we'd Um, like to talk to you. Sir, we'd like to talk to you. Are you indeed such and such? You've never played at the highest level. Have you? No, I have. Uh, I play a very high level, but the photocop or the um, fax machine, that he would do his correspondence from was in a coffee shop in Italy. And he made up this fake resume and he conned teams. And that was in the late nineties, early two thousands. The Ali Dia story is wild. That's amazing. absolutely wild.
1: So I'll say this though. If you're somebody who thinks that that's kind of like he got number one on this list on a technicality, I will then tell you number two on this list is a real player. But
0: Mattia Kesman, Chelsea.
1: No, Danny Drinkwater, Chelsea. He's number two for the, uh, the second worst transfer of the EPL era. 2017, 34.1 million pounds, 12 appearances with Chelsea his first season, and then just one next year in the Community Shield, if that even counts. And that's it. He's been on multiple loans since then. He's been in uh, – he had the fight where he, he's been in legal trouble. Um, that backfired spectacularly. And that is uh, – after Ali Dia, that's the second worst transfer in the EPL era. So there you go. Huh. Uh, let's see now. <laughs> Man of the match. MOTM, as many refer to
0: it. Indeed. Um, I will go with this from RTE that I noticed today, which is a window into the current crisis for clubs. It's also a window into like having that that connection to a football team. Money from former players Marwan Fellaini and Alex Witzel has helped save Standard Liège from expulsion from Belgium's top flight after they successfully appealed the withdrawal of their professional license. Former Manchester United and Everton midfielder Fellaini, now playing in China, has loaned the club three million while Borussia Dortmund's Witzel has invested in a company that has bought the club's stadium and will rent it back to them, Belgian media reported. The Belgian Football Association last month withdrew Standard Liège's license amid mounting debts, effectively relegating the club to the fourth tier of Belgian football, which is insane. However, an appeal to the country's sports arbitration court proved successful, club spokesman Olivier Schmitz told reporters on Wednesday. Standard, who finished third behind Arsenal and Eintracht Frankfurt in their Europa League group this season, were in fifth place in the Belgian league when it was suspended in March. It's really draconian. If you don't come up to their licensing standards in Belgium, you go all the way to the the fourth tier. Incredible. So um, that's great from Fellaini and Witzel helping out their, their alma mater.
1: Very nice. Uh, let's see, JJ, I guess from that end of the spectrum to the one that I'm about to go to. People are going to roll their eyes on this, but look, we have to mention the fact that a champion in one of Europe's major leagues was technically crowned this week. Uh, PSG, they've been declared champions of League of uh, for the third consecutive year. What time, is this? Seventh time. We have to mention this. This is a soccer podcast, okay? A champion was crowned in France. We have to talk about it. Uh, Woo! It's their ninth... Um, Let's see, seventh time in the last eight seasons. It's the ninth in their history. Um, They're now tied with Marseille for second most titles in French football. Saint-Étienne is on top with ten. Something tells me PSG is going to catch them. Now, of course, it's worth noting that seven of PSG's nine titles have come since 2011, which coincidentally was the year they were purchased by Qatar Sports Investment. Um, PSG, like like the things we've said about uh, Liverpool – PSG had a 12-point lead with a game in hand over second-place Marseille. So we can, I mean, we can mock this, but ultimately I, I do believe if you're going to give out a title, like I, I talked before about how Barcelona, Real Madrid, that's, it's neck and neck. You can't really award a title there. This is one where I I think most, you know, rationally-minded people could look at the French table and say, yeah, PSG are, are champions of France this season. Um, the real winner here, though, JJ, was Nimet. Uh, they will remain in the top flight of French football due to the promotion playoff in France getting canceled. Uh, Toulouse and Amiens are both going down. Lorient and Lenz will be coming back up. So this was a case where they basically looked at what the table was in the first division and second division of French football. And they said, sorry guys, but this is what we're going with. Um, and they went forward with promotion and relegation. Um, so that's a tough pill to swallow if uh not not so much for Toulouse who were clearly going down but Amiens were potentially still in a fight uh and they are going down. Um well JJ I, this this was something where when I saw this again for the second time on this podcast it was a story where I thought of you because this was really the initial moment that we've seen so far since the coronavirus outbreak where a champion has essentially been decided not on the field but really in a league statement that was issued online uh, and so when I saw this all I could think of is that there's a chance this is going to be how Liverpool break their titleless streak uh and I'm just wondering like how are f- it's I'm not I'm not trying to get you upset or anything but it just sucks like it just for for something that you've waited so long for, it just feels like kind of an an anticlimactic manner in which to have this happen, and it's 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 too bad because this might be what it comes to for Liverpool.
0: Uh, just one point: uh, I contacted Philippe Claire on Twitter, the French journalist, asked him, and he said there would be uh, there will be legal cases now uh, surrounding the the finish of the French season because there will be people parsing over the words. Are uh, the rules? There's a rule about a season having to be cancelled, and that is going to be. Uh, there will be lawyers. As there, like there, there will be lawyers. As for Liverpool, of course it sucks. I, I honestly, I don't want to end in rancor here. But what the hell do you want me to say? This is not good. I know. But, but I, look at you. No, you're you're goading me. I'm not. You are you're genuine as I can be. You are. Oh Jesus, shucks! Your head fell off. Uh, you know, I don't know what you're going to do. You want me to cry? What else can I do right now? No, I don't want you to cry. I don't want you to ask me such an inane question. You know what I'm going to say. I, I just want to hear your feelings and your thoughts. I want, you, I want No, you want to get me upset and mission accomplished. Well done. Well, this is... This There's fair. an air of... It, hey, we need to get out anyway. This podcast is ludicrously long. Wow, look at you arguing about that. You
1: used to rip me for saying that. The fact that you just said it, I kind of want to go another 30 minutes. Just to anger you more.
0: Let's talk more about Liverpool winning the league on a statement. By the way, can I say next week, the time machine will be back. We're (laughs) going to to be in Barcelona in 99 for Manchester United. Uh, That's a good one. Manchester United and Bayern Munich. I wonder what part of the game we'll be focusing on.
1: Can Um, Manchester United score? They always score. That's my Clive Tiltzley impression.
0: That is horrifying, and it sounds like a member of the royal family was doing commentary at the time. And also, I should remind people: I should have said this earlier on because no one's ever going to get to the end of this podcast. Um, uh, JJ's unpopular opinions will be back.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, uh, who
1: knows how many times people thought it it, it had arrived in this podcast? Well, hey, this was fun, man. To you, I say, take you later, fun boy. See ya. Take care.
0: You've been listening to the Caught
1: Offside Soccer Podcast.